Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 413 with Rob Jalvis. Rob is sharing how you can come across as more credible. So you'll learn one, the number one reason why people don't believe you. Two, how method acting can lead you into peak presenting performance. And three, why you should embrace your own dysfunctions. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F413. And now here's Rob's story. Rob Jalvis is a sought-after speaker who teaches, entertains, and inspires audiences worldwide. His live programs around the world have enabled him to amass a client list of Fortune 500 companies that includes Disney, Toyota, GE, a dozen universities, and over 50 financial institutions. He is the best-selling author of six books, including his latest, Why People Don't Believe You, Building Credibility from the Inside Out. So thanks to Rob for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check him out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Rob. Rob, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm excited to dig in, and I think you got so much good stuff to share. And maybe you'll be able to share it, if necessary, in a rapid format because you are a licensed auctioneer. <laughs> what? <laughs> How does one get licensed to be an auctioneer? And tell us a, a tale or two of your auctioneering adventures. Okay. Well, when you have a big mouth and you're running around for 30 years giving seminars, everybody assumes, hey, this guy can do anything on a stage. But I want to tell you, in uh, the state of Virginia, where I initially got licensed, it's harder than it looks. It was 80 hours of certified instruction oh, wow. to be allowed to take the three and a half hour exam. And uh, I had to study cattle and cars and horses and antiques. Uh, but really, all I wanted, unfortunately, there isn't a license like this, all I wanted to do was be able to work charities. I felt like it was a, a good way of giving back, maybe using my skills for something really valuable. So that's about nine and a half years ago. I took my courses. I got certified and been probably average an auction a month, maybe an auction every other month, but 95% for charities. Well, well, that's awesome. So then I guess if you're doing it for charities, then, then you're doing it for free. And, and I'm wondering, well, with all that like education, <laughs> what, what would an auctioneer be paid if he or she were doing a gig for a bankruptcy? You know, hey, we've got an auction and I am the auctioneer. I am well trained and licensed and educated. Like, what would that return in uh, in a gig? Yeah, actually, it's uh, usually a percentage of uh, profit there. And for our charity auctioneers, we're not quite as fortunate. It's a fraction of what I normally get paid. 
So um, actually what I typically do with a charity is I sort of get paid a little and then I never walk out the door with it. I just simply hand it back yeah. so that I can deduct it from my taxes. I want to stay true to the intent, which is there are certain things that we do in life uh, that really have to pay the bills and keep the electricity running. And there are other times in life where we do things that are really uh, just to help others. So when I speak at universities and things like that, and they have a little honorarium, what's the sense of me really taking that? I, you know, I'm going to do something nice. Let's go all the way. That's for charities. Now, sometimes I'll do a, a shopping center or, uh, you know, I've done some universities. I'll take a little something, but it, it's a fraction of what I normally get. Understood. And have you ever auctioned off anything crazy or strange or just noteworthy? Yeah, I'll tell you the best thing I ever auctioned off, believe it or not. And this is for anybody that's ever thinking of putting an auction together. This is what you're looking for. It's not a yard sale. When Letterman was still doing the, his show, we got two tickets to Letterman. Well, they're free, but we got backstage passes and you can't always do that. And then we uh, Marriott threw in a couple nights and we got two train tickets and when we package that all together, and particularly with that unique ability to get backstage, something you can't really get on your own, sort of like Saturday Night Live tickets, that item went for a little over $30,000. It was uh, fairly simple. That, and we also got, uh, one time I auctioned off uh, tickets to the Academy Awards. Again, something you can't normally get on your own. You're not going to find it on Craigslist. Other than the limo, I think we that was in the thirty dollars to $35,000 range. So, those are the kind of things that really actually uh, will excite an audience. I mean, you know, that is very clever. So if, if there are any, you know, fundraisers in the house, mm -hmm. uh, there, there's the trick. You know, you get something you can't get under normal circumstances, and then you package it together into a cool experience. And there it is, the secret Bingo. to a successful fundraising auction. Didn't even know we were going to learn that today. Thank you. <laughs> But what I was planning on learning a bit about was some of the wisdom in your book, Why People Don't Believe You. Great title. Tell us, what's the big idea? Why don't people believe you? When you say big idea, and I'm ready for you now, because I actually thought, what is the big idea? I better know that. It is my book. I think the big idea is there's two of them. First of all, that I'm pleased you like the title. It wasn't my title, but most of us who write books, we'll get everything but our title in there. The publisher typically knows more about titles than we do, but the big idea in my original title was, it's not the words, it's the tune. So a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this spending 30 years of my career, my life, running around the country teaching people what to say, what to say, what to say. We don't really stop and say, wait a minute, let's forget the words. How are we saying it? And so I'd say, in a sense, that's part of the bigger picture of the book. But to really drill down on your question... I think the biggest reason why people don't believe us, as strange as this may sound, is we don't believe us. And things in the book, I know they sound simple, but so are asking questions and listening, but who does that? <laughs> so, you know, and it's such a fundamental communication piece. The easiest way to be believed is actually to tell the truth. Okay. <laughs> and when you stop and think about that, do you have the best podcast out there? From what I hear, it sure is, but you have to believe that. And if it isn't, you have to do everything you can to make it a great podcast, to put your heart and soul into it. And if you go to bed at night and you truly believe that, you don't have to worry about sounding authentic. Now you believe it and the tune will follow. Ooh, I like that a lot. So now you're getting me thinking here because we were talking just beforehand when I was 
stalking you and deciding whether or not to invite you. And you passed. Nice job. You made reference to the greatest life insurance salesperson in ever. Ben Feldman is his name. If anyone wants to take a look. So I, I'm always intrigued by the greatest in the world. And I sort of listened to an interview with Ben Feldman and he doesn't sound super engaging in the interview, but boy, does he believe in life insurance being just like a powerful force for goodness for humanity. I mean, it's clear that he believes that with a, with a deep abiding passion, which, which is striking because I haven't thought of life insurance in that way before, but there you have it. The best of the world had that at a really high level. Let's put a cherry on that Sunday because yep, he completely dominated the insurance industry for decades. And I mean dominated from the sprawling metropolis of East Liverpool, Ohio. But how about this that we add to that story? The fact is, he was the greatest that ever lived by the numbers. And he spoke with a lisp. He, he was actually a fairly quiet guy. He didn't have any of the attributes that we naturally associate with, you know, the greatest salesperson, a Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross kind of Alex Baldwin <laughs> character. He was the complete opposite. I guess when you hear that, whoever's listening, just remember that he was true to his own unique style. You can't imitate this guy. The best imitation you can do is of yourself. So not only did he believe in his product, he was true to his style. He didn't emulate anyone but himself, and that's what made him really successful. All right, so you're telling the truth, you're believing it deep down, and if you're not yet believing it, you're doing all you can to get there with believing it in terms of improving the, the actual kind of facts of the situation. And so then when it comes to the tune, how do we sing a tune that's more appealing? It's interesting you say sing because as I was working through the manuscript, I was actually at one point trying to create a musical score in a sense hmm. of the tune. My musical score had places where we would pause, had places where we would change our pitch, had places where we would change our pace. Actually, all found in music if you think about it. And unfortunately, although I'll work on pitch, and pace and pause with people. The problem is every question you just asked me right now, I can't go, okay, hang on one second. Let, let me let me figure out where my pitch goes up and let me figure out where I'm going to slow this down and where I'm going to speed it up. So we do focus on pitch, pace, and pause, which to me is our critical pieces. But the key is to get that authentic voice to do it without having to sort of stop and micromanage where those pieces are. I don't know if when you're talking to me, for instance, you're gesturing with your hands, but imagine if we stopped and I said, point here. Okay. You know, put your hand up over there. We want that to kind of become as natural as we can. So I think one of the secret sauces, if you will, of the book is actually thinking more like a method actor. What if we took ourselves and actually placed ourselves in the moment? I don't mean just in the moment. I mean, even the point we were just talking about, truly believing. Well, maybe we're getting beat up a little bit out there right now. Maybe our product is, it's just been tough for us. But weren't there times in our life where everything we touched sort of worked out well, where, where we knew the next time we picked up the phone or knocked on a door, it was going to go well? The other six did. Why can't we as a method actor take ourselves to that moment? Are you telling me that when we knock on the door this time, we're going to be less effective? with that in our mind. And that's where that pitch, pace, and pause sometimes can come 
more naturally. Okay, gotcha. So you're saying, let's not put our focus on, okay, at this point in my second sentence, I'm going to drop my pitch low. Right. And, and sort of plan that out in great detail, but rather to get in the zone associated with when you were rocking and rolling and and believing and, and nailing it and high performing. So just sort of method acting into that spot and these things will sort of naturally follow well. Could you maybe bring this all together in uh, an example or a a case study of of someone whose credibility uh, wasn't so hot and then they did some things and they, they saw it really get hot again? Sure. Actually, this whole book really began with me in a bad mood and a bad evening being asked to speak to a group called a career network ministry, a a group that just helps people in career transition. And I don't necessarily like to speak free a whole lot, but I fumbled my way in and figured I'll talk to a dozen people and get this over with. Uh, There were 250 to 300 people in the room. I've been volunteering for six years ever since. It was such a moving experience. But one of the things I noticed in that room, and that was my Petri dish, that's where this started, was I noticed Words. We were working on resumes, words. We were working on elevator pitches, words. We were working on LinkedIn sites, words. We were working on the words and nobody was focusing on the tune. So to answer your question, I actually started about five and a half years ago. I put together my first group of a dozen people. And to get in this program two days, you had to be unemployed a minimum of two years. Half my room was unemployed for over five years. That's chronic unemployment. We put on a two-day program, and I bumbled and fumbled my way through it, but we were hitting on something because 10 of the 12 people were hired within three months. And that's when I realized, okay, we've got something. But I'm telling you, going back on some of the questions you asked, I wasn't working on the words in there. I took that elevator pitch, and uh, you know, there's some value in those, but I put it in the corner, and we worked on their character. We worked on who they were, what they were, taking them to those moments of success. And man, the hands and the words and the pitch and the pace, it followed. But there's an answer to your question. It was 10 for 12 coming out of the gate. And that's when I knew, I think we may even have a book here, but I got to keep digging into this. Well, that's fascinating. What we'll do tell, what are some of the, the most impactful transformational exercises or practices that make that come alive? Wow, that's a good question. Well, one of them we were talking about is whenever I ask them anything, I really try and trim people down to what I call a communication shot clock. I mean, look, there's a shot clock in basketball. It keeps the game moving. There's a shot clock in football, actually. It keeps the game moving. There may very well be a shot clock in baseball. They're going to try it in preseason to keep the game moving. We are in a society now where books are getting smaller and we people just don't have that bandwidth to stay with us. Even our videos are four to six minutes in length. So one of the things as an example was stop talking to them, getting them up to speak, getting them into character and working on their shot clock, meaning trimming those questions down and saying, you know what, rather than giving me your three best points, give me your best point, and if I want more, I'll ask for it. It was an example of really trying to get them a little bit quicker, a little bit lighter on their feet. As an example, that was one technique that we used. So then you said, with the shot clock, is there an optimal, do you recommended uh, time that you would put on the shot clock in terms of number of seconds that you would speak before being quiet? Yeah, I actually have a number, and and I'm going to give it to you, but please understand, I'm answering your question. So it's sort of like when I teach people to to, to sell, and I'm saying, you got to ask second and third level questions, the hand will go up and say, exactly how many? (laughs) 
And it's like, well, you know, that's going to really depend on the personality of the client, et cetera. But I really actually like 45 seconds. I think it's a, a great number. And if I go a minute and 10, that's okay. Uh, and if we go shorter, that's okay too. A lot of the times, if I'm dealing with a more social environment, more social client, I kind of got the green light to go a little bit longer. If I'm dealing with a more dominant client, I'm probably going to trim back. So there's other variables. But I love the conversation we're having because I get frustrated when people are bobbing and weaving saying, but give me a number. So I actually, I think 45 seconds is a good target, but read your audience. Certainly, yes. Well, and that is a helpful benchmark because I think it's it's possible that you can underspeak as well. So if I, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about this, I said, hey, tell us about you becoming a licensed auctioneer. It's like I had 80 hours of instruction and then passed a three-hour exam. It's like, okay, well, yeah. Rob, yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is really interesting. I can't wait to have you back on the show. You're really talented. <laughs> you know, so I think that makes good sense in terms of it's a very rough ballpark zone, but if you're five seconds, it's like, okay, uh, do you hate me? <laughs> What's going yeah. on here? It's hard to form a connection. Yeah. And if you're too long, it's like, okay, I, I already sort of, got the message I was after way earlier and am ready to, to move on to something else. So I, I appreciate that. So, okay, that's one principle is the communication shot clock. And what are some of the other practices or exercises that are really transformational here? Well, you know, and I'm going to give you a couple more, but I want to give you a big picture here because this is kind of, if study my career, I'm actually going at a different angle right now. I got my hardcore training with Xerox and you didn't tie your shoe without a process of some sort at Xerox. But you know, when you have a process, you have a way of measuring what you're doing. And when you can measure it, you can fix it. So boy, am I a repeatable, predictable process person. And yet the topic that we're in, I sort of had to look at the mirror and go, you know, it's not all process oriented. I sort of reframed it in my mind and I said, it's more about percentages meaning it's sort of like when we eat, okay? Well, I'm a healthy person. Good. Well, what do you do? Well, I no longer put sugar in my coffee, just stevia. That's it? Yep, that's it. Well, okay. You really do that all the time and you're a big coffee. I guess that's about a 1%, 2% play. I don't know if you're healthier yet, but I guess it beats the alternative. But you look at healthy people as an example, and they're doing 15, 20 things, exercise, this, that, together, they create a formidable percentage. What we're talking about right now is really percentage plays. So a communication shot clock gives us a couple of percentage points. Truly believing in ourselves gives us percentage points. Taking ourselves mentally to a place where we are successful gives us percentage points. I'm going to give you percentage points as opposed to process. And like I said, I'm almost arguing with me right now because I'm so bred into process, but we're into a topic that is more percentage than process. And so when you say percentage, you're sort of using this as a label of a different means of thinking about approaches such that a process seems to imply if you do A, B, C, D, E, F, you'll arrive at this end result. Whereas percentage says of the result you're after, one thing can account for, you know, 5% of getting to the result. And another thing can account for 10% of the thing. And so thusly, you're kind of suggesting that an ABCDE process ain't going to get you 100% of the way to where you want to be. Exactly. So let me give you a percentage move as an example. And thank you, because that's exactly what I'm saying, by the way. Oh, cool. So a percentage move for me, 
A lot of people, for instance, when they're struggling to be believed and they're, okay, I'm going to believe in myself, this and that, but this company, they're looking at four other people and one of them, I, I don't know, they may have a better relationship. Well, they might, they might not. I love really actually focusing the brain on playing the course and not the opponent. And I'm going to get percentage pieces out of this because by that I mean, if you watch actually a good golfer, it's shocking. They never look at the scoreboard until for three days. They don't look at the scoreboard. They don't care. Uh, they'll look when the final two holes, three holes, because they may have to change their strategy. But how in the world do you play a competitive event without looking around at your opponent? And the answer is, well, what? value does looking at the opponent really have if you sink a 40-foot putt good for you me focusing on that not only doesn't change a thing it removes the focus from my putt it removes the focus from what i'm doing so i think as an example we spend too much time worrying about things we can't control Honestly, if I thought worrying about it would move the dial one percentage point, I would be the most competitive warrior you ever met. But it actually takes away. It doesn't add. So things like playing the course, not the opponent. Things like accepting your limp. You know, you started with the conversation about Ben Feldman. And again, look him up, folks. Like I said, he was not, appearance-wise, he wasn't necessarily the, that natural salesperson look or sound. But in a sense, he had his own limp. We all walk with a limp. Do you know how many people are held back from their own ability to convince others because of their limp? Look, I lost my hair. I, I wasn't thrilled about it, but I had to accept it. It's, it's one of my limps. But I, what I found is the moment it stopped being important to me, it was never really important to anybody else. It was me that was all was focused and obsessed. And if we take that example and look at people that just have certain issues that, you know, maybe that they, they, they don't have that natural punch in their voice. It's okay. Don't be somebody you're not. Just move it from a two to a four. That's all I'm asking. But if we accept our limp, if we play that course, we don't have to misuse our imagination. The lovely quote I actually have by my coffee bar, worry is the misuse of your imagination. It's a wonderful quote. If we start removing those pieces, each thing I'm talking about is getting us a percent here and 3% here and 2% there. And I can give you five more, but I think you're getting the drift of it. I am, I think, at the drift of it. And I imagine you've given me the biggest percentages already up front. Is that fair to say? You know, it depends on the mood that I'm in. And it actually depends on the person. Because when you're communicating, for instance, if you just pay attention to your transitions, so many people will micromanage the body of whatever they're communicating about, particularly presenters. If they actually micromanage the transitions and stuck their landing in the end and spent 90% of their time on the opening, they would increase their credibility. So you see, again, because it's percentage plays, each percentage move will fit a different customer a different way. But yeah, I'm, I'm not wasting your time. I'm giving you ones that I think really resonate and I see get a big bang for the buck for most of the people that I'm working with. Oh, great. Now, let me just make sure I got the transitions point clear. You're just saying if you're like doing a presentation or mm -hmm. a speech, you want to give some extra attention to how you're transitioning from one section to another instead of fumbling or being awkward during those moments? Yeah, I did chuck that one in from left field, didn't I? Uh, absolutely. I train a lot of speakers. It, the, the irony is usually that the core of most presentations 
have for oftentimes, particularly for corporate America, but oftentimes they've gone through a legal read. We can't really change them all that much. So what makes a great communicator and an average communicator? It's not the body of the message. It's them coming out of the gate with an interesting story and idea, really addressing what's in it for the client. So thinking at the beginning, but to get right at what you just asked, the transitions. Yeah, we probably have three or four major points. If I really think those out, I'm not a guy who believes in scripts, but if I actually write them out, maybe back them down to a word outline, if I spend my time working on how I'm going from point A to point B and sewing that body together, and as I said, coming out of the gate strong and sticking my landing, closing strongly, yeah, I'll probably give one of the best presentations I've ever given, but it has very little to do with memorizing the body. That's not where success lies. Okay, that's interesting because the big chunks, one, they they may be unmovable because there was a legal review. Uh, Two, you probably remember them just because one thing leads to another. This is the story about how I formed an accountability group in college, right? Okay, all right, hey. That, that's one chunk. And, and I know it. And we'll go yeah. and make it happen. And, and so, but what I don't know so much is, is how I'm going to move from maybe that piece to how friendship is important. <laughs> right. And by yeah. the way, that's the way most people do it. They'll, they'll go and fall out that friendship is important. But when they transition with, we all have these different pieces, as I've just mentioned, but there's one piece that we don't pay attention to, and that's friendship. You see, friendship is important. Something along that line so that it's it's effortless. And when people walk away, they go, boy, that was really good. Yeah. Now, look, we could spend our time talking about presentations. I'm going to involve that audience. The more they talk, the more they typically like and trust that presenter. I'm going to do other things. But it's the transitions, even when we communicate and are not giving presentations. What if we're giving just in front of somebody giving a proposal? What if we're having a conversation and we want to get to three major points? It's that smooth transition as opposed to that bumpity bump, bump, bump. Sounds like Pete wanted to talk about this one. That's the one I want to avoid. That doesn't sound authentic. And we circle back to the, our topic, which is why people don't believe you, because it's not sounding authentic. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Well, I get a real kick out of it when the transition is to, um, so can I have your money? <laughs> and it's done poorly. It's like, oh, oh you poor guy. <laughs> I'm already on board with your vision, so it's fine. But... <laughs> Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's dig into a little bit of this now. So believing in yourself, that sounds uh, classic and helpful and essential. But in practice, if your belief in self is moderate, like, yeah, I could do a decent job most of the time, I guess. (laughs) You know, how does one elevate that? Yeah. Did you ever see there was a commercial done years ago by FedEx? It's actually on YouTube. You can find it online. It's called The Stolen Idea. And it deals with a boss who's asking for ideas. And one guy says, well, we could probably save money by putting all our shipping in one area and using FedEx. And there's, we could hear a pin drop. Five seconds later, the boss says, I got it. We can put everything in one area. We can use FedEx to do it all. And that will save us on shipping. And everybody goes, oh, that's brilliant. The guy says, well, you just said the same thing I said, only you, you did this. And he's moving his hands horizontally. And the boss says, nope, I did this. And he moves his hand vertically because that was his gesture. (laughs) I actually look at that commercial and I think that's our jumping off point. Yes, I know what FedEx was after. And oh, shame on that boss for stealing that idea. But you know what? We need to teach people how to do this. This matters. That moving of the hands, that really matters. So to me, 
it's a matter of kind of oftentimes finding your real voice, not finding some voice you saw on television or or you heard in a podcast, but finding your real voice. I don't know the last time you've been on a plane, but when you're on a plane and the flight attendant starts speaking, you think, you know, it's funny. He or she was just here. We had a nice conversation. But now I'm hearing this really weird sing song. That's not a real voice. Why is it that we, a lot of times when we're presenting or when we're under pressure, we start going after this, I guess, the voice we thought we were supposed to have. Nobody wants that. People just want to believe and they want that to be authentic. And I always look at people and I think, you know, if we were two people having a beer or having a cup of coffee, would you still talk and walk and behave this way? Or would you just drop all that and have a conversation? So it's really about finding that real voice. And honestly, you don't have to look that far. And I whisper this to uh, presenters right before they go on stage when they're a little bit tight. The last words I'll typically tell somebody is, if you were walking into your living room, what would you feel and how would you take that stage? That's your living room. Now go enjoy yourself. You know, Forget all that other nonsense. In the living room, it's pretty easy. Well, that's all the audience wants, whether it's 50 people, 500 people, or one person. They're in your living room. Go have a conversation. We don't need anything but authenticity. It's funny when you say the living room, my first thought is, well, I'm taking off these dress shoes and putting on my slippers. (laughs) Well, I knew a presenter who was actually very successful. Now, this was in the 90s, you know, but... He was a finance person and a finance specialist, which already you think, well, okay, here comes that big old suit. Uh, But he would take his shoes off when he went on that stage. And, you know, it was kind of a shtick. It was like George Burns smoking a cigar or something. This was his shtick. He was the guy who would take his shoes off. But you know what? It worked for him. It wasn't shtick. I got a chance to speak to him a couple of times, and he just wanted to get to a place where he was as comfortable as he could be because then he could take that communication and make them as comfortable as they can be. You know, last thing about that, but it's really important to understand that an audience really, they want to enjoy themselves. They want you to be successful. The best way to make an audience uncomfortable is for you to be uncomfortable. (laughs) It's very true. Then they feel badly for you and then they have a problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It just hurts. (laughs) <laughs> to watch someone who's who's bombing, oh, yeah. they know they're bombing, they're nervous about bombing, and uh, it's like, oh man, and it's just fun to watch someone having fun. It's like, you know what, I'm not super into the content of what you're saying, but uh, it's kind of enjoyable to watch you be into it, <laughs> and yeah, take it away. Yeah, you know, that's the, that's the funny thing. If you think about some of the great Johnny Carson or Jay Leno or Jimmy Fallon, what are some of the most enjoyable parts of the monologue, of the conversation? When something bombs, they don't put their head in their hair and they go, oh no, what happened here? <laughs> what they do is they just work with it. And the audience loves it because you didn't make the audience feel sorry for you. You, allowed, you said to them in a sense, I'm glad this happened. Let's just work with it. And when you can take that with you and realize that what's the worst that can happen, really just making them feel badly. So don't. Uh, away we go. It's just, it's a lot easier up there than you think. You know, that's true. I think I've made some references to like maybe college audiences and they're just like, we have no idea what that is. I was like, oh, I guess I'm getting old. And then we, we all just sort of, because to sort of laugh about that. It was like, huh, yep, okay. Right. And, then, and then away right. we go. As opposed to, oh, I'm so stupid. I shouldn't make that illusion. You know, look up the dates next time, right. Pete. Oh, bad, bad, bad. 
You know something, Pete, you hit on something else that I think is actually really important. When we're not in front of people, and remember, we're talking about building credibility, believing in yourself, and then taking that to others. And my wife helped me with this one. Do you know how innocently that inner voice starts chirping at you of, yeah, if you had a half a brain, you would have remembered to bring this with you on the road. Hey, stupid, don't forget that. Do you know that that's a lot more dangerous than we give it credit? It doesn't have to be in front of anyone. It can just be with ourselves. But you know, you keep beating yourself up like that, you're going to start believing it. So I really, some years ago, decided it's not okay to make fun of me and to start moaning and whining and complaining about certain things. People forget things. Uh, you know, you're two and a half million miles in the air. Believe me, I forgot things in my bag. But I'm, I've decided, and it really works, and I think it works for others, to be a lot kinder to yourself. Stop, stop chirping and beating yourself up about things. Just like we were talking about in front of an audience, be nice to yourself when there isn't an audience in front of you too. I'd love to hit that point real quick. So if you are in that mental habit, how does one kick it? Yeah. Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to go from unconsciously incompetent, which is, hey, that's okay. Or, you know, I don't even notice it to really starting to become aware of it. It becomes, I don't know if you've ever heard of the four con levels of conscious behavior, but we start with unconscious incompetency, which is sometimes we don't know that we don't know. So that's a dangerous place to be. Well, that's why you and I are having this conversation because now maybe we'll be on the lookout for it. As a matter of fact, just talking about it, I can assure you, there are many people who are listening right now who go, you know, I do that, but I'm, you know, I don't mean anything by it. I'm telling you, it's a cancer. It grows. You don't realize it. So let's move you to conscious incompetency, which means I want you to be aware when you do it. Then let's move to conscious competency. I want you to be a little robotic. And every time it accidentally happens, I want you to stop and correct it. And I know that's a little bit stiff and weird until we become unconsciously competent. When we do it, and we don't have to think about it anymore. But it's natural to be on that scale. The first thing is we have to remind ourselves it's not okay. It is not okay. Okay. All right. Well, so now I said it's not okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is not okay. And I am now acknowledging what you've said and moving to something new. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I was. I got to climb in through the window there. I was out there yelling at people. Okay. I'm back in. Let's keep going. Well, so let's talk about that process by which you take yourself back to a place in which you were successful, and thusly you you method act your way into having a high performance moment. In practice, what are the steps to make that happen? Well, the first thing, and you know, I, I'm going to leave the corporation out, but it's a Fortune 500 company I've been working with on this. And we actually, one of the things we did was, again, think method acting. What we did was we began to, on a piece of paper, create a character. One of my favorite actors is Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm not sure he's ever going to be in another movie again, but I don't know if you saw Lincoln, but if you did, it was probably a little slower than you imagined. I knew it was going to be slow because I actually read a bunch of books on Lincoln. And Lincoln wasn't the most exciting person in the world. But on set, you had to call Daniel Day-Lewis either Mr. President or Mr. Lincoln, okay? He doesn't mess around. When, when we're talking, to answer your question, we're talking about getting into character. Sometimes we have to sit and actually think about that character. So I did some acting earlier in my, my life. You know, I remember the first play I was in, I was Benny Van Buren in Damn Yankees. I was, the, I was supposed to play a 70-year-old, but I had a great director who, by the way, I spoke to when I wrote this book and we talked about this. And I remember him saying, 
What kind of car does Benny drive? What kind of cereal does he eat? Tell me about his house. What's his office look like? And what he was doing at first, I thought he was a lunatic. I don't know. It's just a character I'm playing. But he didn't want me to learn the script. At some point, I knew that character so well, I walked around. I was 70 years old in my mind. So what I do sometimes is actually get people on a piece of paper to begin to actually write out their character a little bit. Not necessarily what kind of cereal do they eat, but tell me about your character. Perform some tasks in front of me like your character. Forget everything else. We clear the mind. We work on establishing a character. And actually, for some people, it'll be three characters. It's a more dominant character. It's a more social character. And it's a more analytical character. And if you're wondering why in the world I do that, it's because I work with a lot of salespeople. We have to kind of mirror the character we see in front of us. So maybe I'm very social. What if I'm talking to somebody who's really dominant? Well, I'll just play the role of a dominant person, not so fast. You better understand, before you put that white glove on, you better understand that character. So we actually write it out and think about it. And I actually give them simple questions, like a questionnaire, and they begin to role play and really get in touch with that character. And then they can tap into it when they need it. Okay, interesting. So you're mapping that out up front. You're doing some role play there. And you also had uh, Todd Herman talk about his book, The Alter Ego Effect. And, and he recommended mm-hmm. sometime putting on like a, a blazer or glasses mm-hmm. or, or something that just sort of sort of enclosed cognition, sort of stepping into that all the more. So that's handy. And so then I'm also wondering, is there some visualization or some key uh, memories that you're you're bringing up and, and how do you go about doing that part? Yeah. And that's where we go into that piece about, for me at least, and remember, I frequently work with people who are selling. Okay. So look, what I'm trying to have them visualize are moments of dominance, moments of of success. It's weird. You know, I'm 26 years in business as a professional speaker. And yet, you know, just like everyone else, sometimes you're as good as your last presentation. You're as good as your last quarter. All of a sudden, Speakers Bureau threw three clients at me. I spoke to them on the phone. None of them wanted to hire me. What do you think I sound like on the, the fourth call? And so what I'm trying to do is get to moments where when we do get three in a row, When we do knock it out of the park and somebody says, okay, now I have another client I want you to talk to. That's what I mean in terms of that visualization of, okay, maybe I'm not there right now, but I can think back on when I was and what was I feeling like. And so I sort of take myself to that moment. And Pete, it comes back to that percentage play. I'm not guaranteeing you that we're going to be successful right now, but I guarantee you this, having that mindset and being able to pull that memory down is going to pick us up some percentage plays, and that's what I'm looking for. So again, it's mental, but it's there. No one has had a life of complete loss. It's everybody. We win some, we lose some. We win some, we lose some. It's when we lose some, a bunch in a row, that all of a sudden the shoulders start to droop. We kind of start picking up the phone going, in my mind, I know this guy isn't going to buy it from me, but here we go. That's not going to work for anybody. Yeah, that's great. So, so thank you to write back to, you know, the hot streak, the winning moments. That's good. That's good. Well, it's the winning moments. And I keep pushing everything into sales, but in presentations, a lot of times, particularly when somebody is new or somebody, I'll also whisper in their ear track record because maybe people are listening right now have got 10 or 20 years under their belt, but maybe this quarter hasn't been so good, or maybe they haven't given a presentation in a while or, or been put, they're being put in an awkward position. What's your track record like? And most people go, well, usually I'm you know, pretty good at that. Okay, again, I'm looking for a couple percentage moves. I don't even forget the experience. 
How about we focus on what usually happens, Pete, when you have a podcast? What usually happens when I'm a guest on a podcast? It usually goes real well. Not all the time, but usually goes real well. I'm better off kind of focusing on my track record. But that's, to me, another kind of really great visualization. It's simple and it's easy. Excellent. Thank you. Well, well, tell me, is there anything that you recommend that we really don't do? We've talked about the negative self-talk, not doing that. We've talked about not stepping into who you think that you are supposed to be, but rather just using your, your own natural, authentic voice. Any other you know, top don'ts you want to make sure we highlight? That's a great question. I'm actually thinking of how I would address that. Yeah, I would say that um, I think we should stop being so fearful of dysfunction. You know, we brought it up a little bit when maybe things don't go well in front of an audience. But I think, again, whether it's while we're alone or whether we're in groups, I like to tell people that I'm coaching or working with, let's embrace that dysfunction a little bit. You know, kind of going back to that limp a little bit. Let's remember that there's only two types of people that don't walk with a limp, that don't have some level of dysfunction. They're either not telling you the truth or they would have no ability to have compassion for another individual. Both of them really aren't necessarily people I'd want to have as a client, I can tell you that much. It's funny, I wrote a piece one time where I said, uh, knowledge is overrated. <laughs> and believe me, all the analyticals practically followed me to the parking lot going, now what did you mean by that? They were not happy. I didn't say it's not important. I just said it's overrated, meaning if we just, as simple as it sounds, but I'm a guy who takes and has people record themselves, if we just work harder on asking questions and listening, if we just go a little easier on ourselves, if we embrace that dysfunction rather than run from it and understand that's okay, that's my limp, I'm not going to have trouble with it. All those little pieces get us plays. Just last real quick point, but I'm in a neighborhood where we've got uh, a lot of dog walkers, including our, our Lily, who we take for a walk. And there's not one but two dogs that are missing legs, uh, a leg each. I got to tell you, it touches my heart because I look at them and I think, I wish we were more like that because I promise you, Pete, that dog doesn't give a hoot nanny that is missing a leg and neither does any other dog that's walking by it. They, you know, they, they're sniffing. They're curious where they might have been on that tree over there, but they don't care. It's not an issue. I wish we could learn lessons like that and remember that whatever it is and everybody's got one. If it's not a worry for you, it's not a worry for the other dogs in the park, I promise you. Awesome. Well, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I would say as strange as this conversation may have sound, because you know we're talking about some kind of wacky, wants us and roll and character, what is all that? I want to remind people they'll probably do this more often than they think. And an example I'll give you is if you have children that you parent, don't tell me that you don't actually drop into role. Meaning, particularly for the younger ones, when they brought back a homework assignment that wasn't quite right or something, you know, we kind of look at our spouse and go, okay, I, I'll go in there. And we play the role of disappointed. <laughs> and we, I'm actually not as disappointed. I love you so much. <laughs> you do so. But for tonight, Rob Giles will be playing the role of disappointed. And I think we do that more naturally than we think. So, where we've really explored this finding a character and getting into role, please remember there are times where we all play roles. You're just not thinking about it as much. So I want you to think about it. Then I want you to stop thinking about it again. That'd be the last thought I'd give you on that one. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? 
I gave you one, which is worry is the misuse of your imagination. So, okay, now I'll give you a, a, another one. We weren't put on this earth to make a living. We were put on this earth to make a difference. It's always meant something to me, particularly for a guy who, you know, when I tell you I got two and a half million miles in the air, Pete, part of you should smile and part of you should, should look concerned, mm-hmm. meaning... Well, does this guy have a family? Does this guy have children? Does he get to a birthday party? And I'm really blessed. I have a wonderful wife, Ronnie, who helped me realize that I was a little out of balance earlier in my career. And I didn't really take that. I never heard of that quote, nor did I take it to heart. But I really believe in balance. And I'm no longer a 1K. That's just fine by me. I think that uh, we focus on that. Uh, Things will go a lot better for us. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I'll tell you a, a bit of research or a study, and it kind of falls into uh, an author I happen to like. He's with uh, my publisher, Barrett Kohler. His name is uh, Noah Blumenthal, but he wrote a book called Be the Hero. But he studied how easy it is for us to make negative opinions of others, particularly the others that have done us wrong. Maybe a previous boss or a neighbor or somebody, to, you know, the person at CVS, I don't know. With it really rubbed us the wrong way. He really got me thinking, and it's really helped, that we really don't know many of the people that we form opinions about. We really don't know them that well. And we create a scenario that's usually very negative. Now, that scenario might be right, but we actually don't know whether it's right or not. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? I keep a journal. I've kept it for 22 years. But what I found was by methodically being observant, which is what a journal will do, because I will only write twice in my journal, on the way out and on the way back of a trip. So I am almost OCD-ish. I will, when we get to 10,000 feet, I'm, I'm putting a, a date and a location on that journal entry. But it's a tool that actually, particularly for the way back, that allows me to kind of figure out to stop, pause, and in process say, okay, what do you think was working there and what do you think wasn't working there? And like I said, I've been doing this 31 years, uh, putting a mic around my neck and talking to audiences. And yet, I want you to know, Pete, that I still (laughs) want to get better. And that means I still want to figure out, okay, what did we do well? What can we improve? And very importantly, I always balance that feedback because I've said it too many times already, but this isn't a beat-up session. A lot of times we undervalue taking time to figure out what we're doing well, so we don't do it by accident. But that's been a tool. I probably have well over 3,000 pages of journal entries. Cool, thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and they, they quote it back to you at times? If you want to get at the most fundamental way to communicate, We have to ask questions and listen. And that doesn't just mean what you and I are doing right now or if we're going one-on-one with a a client or a prospect, even in front of an audience. If you want to know what the amateurs and even the pros do wrong, if I put down the 20 biggest mistakes they make, 19 of them don't equal number one, which is too much information. And that means constricting the ability for that audience to communicate with you, even if it's rhetorical questions. But those little touches, those little turn to your left, look at that partner, say three things here, try two things there. That ability to build a a conversation as opposed to a lecture are very valuable. And I I would like to think that I've said it enough that who knows, maybe people would associate that with me. I'd be proud if they did. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Well, that's an easy one. I would just take them to J-O-L-L-E-S dot com, and that's where you'll find, I write something called a blarticle, 
I'm in my 10th year of articles, and that's a blog article. I just try, you know, by legal definition, it's 500 to 700 words. I just try and practice what we're preaching you and I, which is let's not over-communicate, but let's provide value and drip out information. But anyway, that's where all sorts of information on me is. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Okay. Pete, you're really coming at me. I like this. Yeah, my final challenge would be, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think is out there holding you back. Get out of your own way. And you and Pete, you and I have hit it over and over and over again. Just be kinder to yourself. Accept whatever limp you have. And I can assure you, you've got one. That's okay. Don't let it be a big issue. It won't be with, with anybody else. And go in there, and again, the easiest way to find that authentic you is just get up there, wherever it is, tell the truth. And if the truth is a struggle right now, double back and figure out, I got to rebrand, I got to do something, but I got to find a way of telling the truth. If you solve that, then you've got it made. The rest is easy. Beautiful. Rob, this has been a blast. Thanks so much for bringing it. I wish you lots of luck with your speaking and all you're up to. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I got a real big kick out of how Rob was pointing to the potential tendency to just sort of switch into another voice that is not your own when you're doing a presentation. Like, oh, it's business time. Oh, it's presentation time. Oh, it's formal time. I want to adopt this different persona, which is often counterproductive in terms of achieving your goal of seeming totally credible, believable, and folks jiving and vibing with your authentic you self that you're delivering there. So I thought that was handy in terms of you be you, but do the method acting to be in the the best version and the most applicable flavor of you for the occasion. You're still being you, you're still being authentic, but you're choosing to do it professionally and you're not choosing to be uh, a totally different person entirely. So I thought that was some some useful distinctions to think about that in terms of, all right, am I still keeping it real or am I kind of entering a, a totally different person? And a good rule of thumb to check yourself there. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links, as we've referenced, are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep413. Hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Gretchen Anderson. She's got a boatload of research about how cultural change happens. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.